Fualcha, 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 Achorja Gale. This is episode 59 of the Rebel Matters podcast and I've just spent the last hour or so in the room here with the candles burning away, incense going and listening back to the chat that I had with Maria Gillen who is today's guest on the podcast. Maria is a storyteller, a drama therapist member of the Cork Yarn Spinners and we recorded this chat kind of as part of the little series that I was working on on the subject of folklore and mythology and there's been a great response to last week's episode with Steve Lally so thanks very much to everyone who listened to that there and to keep with the theme of storytelling folklore mythology and also to keep with the theme of making December a lovely healing and positive month. I thought that this would be the perfect time to really release this episode. Um, you're really going to enjoy it. Thanks, first of all, to Colleen Jones, who trains at Ackley and who's the person who sent me the contact details for Maria. So without Colleen, this episode would not be happening. So, Karamila Margaret. Akara, in this episode, we talked about loads of different stuff. We talked about how there is strength and softness, the silent hand, how drama therapy can be used in conflict areas and um, with people who have suffered from traumatic things or when traumatic things are going on, how storytelling can be cathartic, how it can be used to hand down knowledge. We talked about technology and how it is could be impacting us today and the effects of modern economics might have on like the passing down of wisdom from generation to generation and we also touched on the representation of women in Irish folklore. Maria told a good few short stories as part of this podcast and for me the real highlight of the podcast is towards the end when Maria tells the story that came to her one night about the fox and just listening back to it now it was making me have all the feels all the fields when I was listening to that story and um, I think um, it's going to resonate with a lot of people in terms of how we see ourselves and how we want to be seen and how much we love ourselves and I think the less said about the story the better at this stage because what I would recommend most is that you take a bit of a time out of your day and if you can, just sit back and listen to Maria talking about how she became a storyteller and sharing some stories with us and just have a nice chill out for yourself while you're listening to this episode. Um, what else? It's been a hectic week here. Uh, if any of you are out there who follow along with the social media on Ackley, you'll know that Steph, who has poured her heart and soul into running the events and looking after the members and overall helping actually develop over the last seven months or so is after moving away to Kenya to start her next life adventure and we're all very happy for her but at the same time that's pretty sad we dropped Steph up to the airport the other day and it was pretty emotional and myself and Steph have been pretty much joined at the hip for the last half of a year or more so um just going to use this little opportunity to say I'm more to Steph and we all miss you already and that happened then what else was going on there I went to see Talos last week in 
the St. Luke's, which is a class music venue in Cork, uh, run by Joe and Ed. And if you ever get a chance to go there, I would highly recommend it. The Talos gig was class. Then went to see them again on Sunday, and then we had a big party afterwards, which was great. And then it's just been a mental week, getting ready for, you know, the end of the year at Ackley and organising the various bits and pieces that need to be done before the end of the year but the best thing about this week so far has just been bumping into people that I haven't seen in ages and getting the opportunity to chat with people that we may not necessarily get that much time together because we're all like ships in the night and so that's the most positive thing about the festive season really getting to um, meet people that you don't normally see in Hopefully getting a bit of time to chill out for yourself, which is the thing that Kenneth uh, brought the idea of Healing December to mind. So I'm still getting really good feedback about that Healing December episode, which was not the last one, but the one before that, episode 57. So if you want to hear me talking away about uh, the importance of making December a month where you put your mental and physical health to the fore, then go back and have a wee listen to that there. So before we get stuck into the episode with Maria, I've actually got a big, massive bottle of handcrafted traditional porter from the Dingle Peninsula. It's called Bjorkarkra, made by the West Kerry Brewery and given to me by the one and only Sir Anderson, or Sir Moves, as he's better known on social media I'm going to actually just open it here this is one of those kind of like bottles that you pull the metal kind of lever thing and it pops open so hopefully it's going to make a nice sound and I'm going to put it up to the microphone here mm, smells unreal I'm going to pour it out here and then we'll get stuck into this episode with um, Maria Oh, holy crap, that is delicious. Unreal. You should check that stuff out, lads. It's magnificent. Pure Corkra from the West Kerry Brewery. And thanks a million to Sarah Anderson for hooking me up with that beautiful bottle of stuff. All right, lads. So, as usual, at the end of the episode, if you want a little bit of a story time, then I'm going to be there after the outro music, reading a little bit of Roald Dahl's book, Boy, Tales of Childhood. We've been reading a chapter after each episode since episode 52. So if you want to hear the start of that book, then you'll have to go back to episode 52 and go on to the part of the podcast that's after the outro music. And you'll get the chapters for, for, for every subsequent episode from there on in. But in the meantime, lads, really sit back and enjoy this episode of the Rebel Matters podcast with Maria Gillen.
I heard the story, Oma Aher, if you haven't the Gaelga, ah, well, sure, this time it doesn't matter. This rural island tragic tale relates a sad, seductive scale about lust without discretion. I guess Bjogna Grodi Long ago, Fado Fado, in a little town name of Caharo, lived Buchelman name of Michal Moore, an only son of 44. And when work was done at the end of day, he'd settle down with Copante and never felt the need to stroll or spend an evening time in goal. His intellectual needs were drawn from big books like Peg and Iasagon, and so it was, bleeding in, bleeding out, or Michal hardly moved about. He dreamt of Colleen, most men do, but never sinned on digging to. So when I'd be working with school refusers and they tell me they'd know Irish, I'd go, I'll tell you this so, and if you laugh, I know you have Irish. And that was an opener to bring the Irish in. And my Irish would kind of say, get me a bed for the night, get me food, kind of stuff, like my French. It wouldn't be as good as to put a blast on the language, like Paddy, do you know? Yeah, so. And most people do have that bit of Irish exactly. in the back pocket somewhere. Exactly. But if you use. use it, up it comes again. And the storytellers are committed to that. So in in uh, Nagelga or Blee Nagelga, we give it our best. And I went to some of the um, Irish circles and stuff like that and told stories and said, you'll have to help me now, you know. Um, but there's one beautiful story about the Irish language and it's about um, the difference between the armies. So they, they say that the Irish warriors and the British warriors, they were always, you know, kind of um, head to head. And there was a thousand years of peace and the warriors were like, we're going to lose our skills. What will we do? So they had kind of like an Olympics Games and the old enemies came down to be the last two, the Irish and the English. And the Irish um, language, um, we'd say, a feeling is upon me, but the English, they'd say, I'm hungry. And their whole being is hungry in that moment because they don't separate themselves out at all. But as well as that, they would, the Irish would send their young warriors out at the age of seven to lie on the horse's heart. So the horse became their friend and comrade in the field. But the British, they would put divisions just like they did with the armies, with the captains and all of this, you know. So they would order their men and they would order their animals. So they put two horses on either side of the field and the two warriors and they were to bring the horses across the field and it was going to be a timed event. And the Englishman said, come here right now, horse. And the horse reared back and his eyes rolled in his head from fear. And then he came galloping across the field because he would be afraid of his master. And then the Irish fella, he stood and he looked at his horse from across the field and he went, like that. And the horse just sailed across the field. But that moment of not rearing back and just coming across the field meant that the Irish won. So there's an awful lot of strength in softness. That's the, the moral of the story. <laughs> so there's loads yeah. of bits and pieces like that. Yeah. What was it about st- storytelling that first kind of grabbed your imagination? Oh, I suppose for me, I've grown up listening to stories because my mother would uh, teach us through story, you know. And I remember, I'm not sure if you remember this, but in the 1980s, um, the grid in Ireland became under pressure. So very often we'd have um, outages of power and you'd come home and she'd light a candle in a jam jar in the middle of the table and she'd say, come on to the story sofa and I'll take you away. And that's exactly what would happen. 
you know, and of all my childhood memories, that's the one I miss most that I'd like to go back to, you know. Do you have any particular stories that you remember from back in the day? Oh, we, I have great stories. They, they had a pet name for World War Two in Cork and it was called Dear Merchancy. I've heard that before. <laughs> and there's, absolute, there's loads of stories about uh, that. And one of my favourite stories is something called The Silent Hand. Have you ever heard of The Silent Hand? No. Okay, so the silent hand says you don't bring shame down on poverty and that everybody was in a poor situation at the time. So you wouldn't say, oh, I see you're in trouble there. Would you like a loan of 20 pounds or whatever, you know? Instead, you'd say, oh, look at me. I'm, I'm so stupid. I made too much stew. Will you take some off my hands? They would do it that way. And uh, one of the older women, because I collect stories from the older women in Cork, one of them said, um, sure, girl, if someone dies, belong to you now. Your head is full of, um, how am I going to organise for the soup and the sandwiches, you know, in a time when you should be remembering back um, to, to, you know, the times, the gorgeous times that you have with your loved one. And she said the silent hand would say that you opened your door, you closed the curtains, you, you know, kind of, you opened the windows as soon as the soul died so they could get out through the window then you closed the curtains, but the windows were open and you opened your door and people came in and they brought with them sandwiches and soup, you know, and they said one woman would be in control of um, the beautiful tablecloth, the lace tablecloth, you know, and she would wrap it in uh, blue paper, uh, brown paper first, then blue paper to keep the colour. But at important occasions, it would just appear on the table. And so you didn't have to worry about how your house looked or what would be on the table, because all of that was taken care of by the silent hand. A lot of those stories connected with handing down traditions and customs, yeah, as opposed to just being a pure old story just for the sake of it. Absolutely, yeah. you know. So, and um, I, I also work with um, a, a mechanism called a six-part story because I'm a drama therapist. So this story, uh, this mechanism comes from a gentleman by the name of Muli Lahad. And he would go into war-torn areas or places that were devastated by natural phenomenon like um, the tsunamis and things like that. And often he'd be the first responder and people are so clenched from shock that the only way to reach them is through uh, the stories. And I found these stories were very important when they, you know, kind of when we went through our downturn, particularly with young men. So I would have worked a lot in the desh areas of Cork City. And um, I found as a therapist sitting down belly button to belly button and eyeball to eyeball that a man doesn't work. But if you have a project that you're working on together and you're shoulder to shoulder, then it works, you know. And um, there, there's some beautiful stories that came out of that. And some of the, the gentlemen were saying, tell these stories because they're so important that they save lives. And one of those um, stories that I tell is an amalgam of stories for young men. Um, and, uh, you know, it's about this boy who was, uh, I'll give you the helicopter view rather than the whole <laughs> story, but it's, a, it's about this young boy who was born on the outskirts of Cork City and he was beloved of his grandparents because his mom was a single mother and his role model was his grandfather. And when his grandfather died, um, the, the grandmother died as well because you know they were so close that she couldn't live without him 
And then the mother sold the house and moved into the centre of Cork City. And it was just at the time that this young boy was leaving primary school, going into secondary school. And he grew so fast that he became one of the biggest boys in the class very quickly and an object for bullying because the biggest one is the one that gets called out all the time, even though he had a very gentle nature. And the men of the time, the men, the, the men in the men's shed said, sure, we all went through that when we were young fellas, you know. And what you do is you say something smart and while he's waiting, for, while, while he's trying to think of an answer, you get to walk away with dignity, you know. So practicing that then with the young men, um, you know, kind of in the, in the therapy situation meant that they started to use their words and their head instead of their fists. And it brought real change really quickly and that was from a story you know that had grown out of um out of doing the six-part story with with a, it was a big trend of bullying that was going on you know kind of in the schools at the time it's interesting that you mentioned uh, the uh, the <coughs> storytelling and drama has a role in say war-torn areas or areas that have conflict in them because Absolutely. actually so i'm from west belfast and <coughs> my dad was involved in um, setting up uh, initially uh, an amateur uh, theatre company and mm-hmm. I mean they must have set it up in the early 90s or maybe even before that but they then they transitioned their professional company mm. uh, 21 years ago now actually but um, and that was at a time and there was a, a lot of conflict going on up in, in Belfast at the time and I think that the drama has played a pretty key role in giving pe- people an outlet to express themselves yeah, uh, through those times, it was quite a difficult time as well. Absolutely, that absu- that gladdens my heart so much. You know, kind of because I I really believe in the ability of drama to touch parts of people that um, that can't be touched. Um, and when I'm in, I tell corporate stories. I go into the corporate environment, and it's very heavily um, concentrated on the intellect. So I look at a thing called piles, physical, intellectual language, emotion, social and spiritual, which is exactly what you're talking about. But there is a huge link between Cork and Belfast. Did you know that? In what way? So uh, when I was in school, I remember I uh, going in one day and I had a desk to myself. And when I, I went in on this morning, I had one girl on one side of me and one girl on the other side. And they were the Donnelly twins from Belfast. And they'd come down through the night, you know. And so with them, they brought their songs and their stories and their beautiful accent. And so a big connection was made between uh, Cork and Belfast. Um, It would have been in the late 70s, early 80s that that would have happened. And it was because people had to leave in traumatic circumstances to come down and reroute. Yeah, you know, so I look at all of the instability in the world today and I say, you know, that that would have been my personal experience of that. But there was a beautiful story that came with them um, called Rosie Brown. Are you familiar with it? You know, so it starts off with, I was born and bred in Sandy Row, a royal orange prod, a follower of King William, that noble man of God, a man of no surrender, may flag the Union Jack, and every year I proudly marched to Fenahan back. As well as that, a Linfield man, as I could mind, he had no pe- time for people, or Catholics or people of that kind. Then one night down in Bonger, I met we Rosie Brown, and the minute I set eyes on her, my heart went up and down. Now, I worked in a company called PJ Hagerty's, and it was full of men and very few women. 
this I would have started work there in 1985, so a long time ago. It's the year I was born. Was it? Yeah. Oh my God, so <laughs> a long time ago. And um, um, the men, you know, kind of, uh, like a lot of builders would be very stoic, you know, and wouldn't show an awful lot of emotion. Banter would have been um, how they expressed themselves. But once a year, they used to have this big session organized by Murphy's Brewery, who were one of our clients at the time. And a beautiful man called Jim Devine would tell that story. And the men felt absolutely comfortable to show emotion and there'd be tears rolling down their face to that story, Rosie Brown. That so, story yeah. is interesting because the Sandy Row place that you mentioned is a place that we would never go. Exactly. Is for fear yeah. of your, of your no. life. Yeah. No <laughs> for go. a lot of the time. Yeah. And Finnegy, actually my dad lives in Finnegy at the minute, but mm. did you mention the link between Cork and Belfast? In Milltown Cemetery, which is the main cemetery in um, in West Belfast, really, there is a huge plot of kind of unmarked graves of mostly people who would have travelled to Belfast to work in the mills and stuff and people yeah. who died who d- they didn't know like, where they came from and stuff like that but there's actually a cross there and I think it's from 1947 or something like that of a, a woman who had come from Cork to work in the mills in Belfast and yeah. was buried there and another connection actually now that we're seeing as we're talking about it but my dad learned to speak Irish in uh, St Mary's in Belfast and it was actually a Cork man who, who was teaching him Ooh. and and there, so his brother Bozang oh I love brother Bozang yeah. that's a great personal connection between the two of us but there's a, yeah. t- there was two of them yeah so there was one of them was teaching in Cork yeah and one of them was teaching in Belfast did he me. did he stay in Belfast all his life I don't know like I'd have to find out now, yeah. I, I think there was two of them or it was just one of them well we I had a very famous brother <laughs> and he, he was involved in the RS hearing in Cork in the Mardike and he was a great man for getting you to use the little bit of Irish that was locked in the back of your head that's yeah. what he would say um, and he spent some years I believe in Belfast but then he also taught down here in Cork um, he was in teaching in the in the in Scalborough in AG. Yeah. And up in uh, Firhill or up around there. Yeah, there, and I it? think it was I think it was the man. The man, sorry, down here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. um yeah, so um but what a lovely man, what a gentleman and how he communicated a true story was absolutely amazing, you know. Yeah, so. it'd be interesting to try and trace those roots back now yeah. whenever that he was in Belfast and yeah. teaching boys in school and I like all the stuff that's developed from that group of people that came through that, yeah. that system of like learning Irish in Belfast in the yeah. it's the 70s I guess yeah oh well I would have bumped into him I'd say in around 92 you know yeah. so um, so it, it could be the, the same man you know so so what's the what's the the importance of storytelling in terms of um, today's society Okay, so um, first of all, story will, will tell the untellable. So it will look at zeitgeist and it will look at it under a bright white light like nothing else can, you know. Um, so this state, when the Republic of Ireland was born, it was born from poets and storytellers and they were, you know, looking at the world in a new way and using language that showed the world up for what it was at the time. And I think we need a really big dose of that right now, you know. Um, But also there was something called catharsis uh, that the ancient Greeks knew about. So I don't know if you've ever had a really tough day and you're absolutely exhausted. And then you come in and you're reading a good book or you watch Coronation Street or you go to a good film 
And in reality, nothing has changed. But also everything has changed because suddenly you feel better. And that's the ability of a story in whatever form you, you take it to take you away, to allow you to look at things from a distance, a different perspective, and then to come back and to be changed within yourself. So that's catharsis, you know, and story is full of catharsis. And are there, there are lessons there from back in the ages in some of the stories that you're telling that, that people can apply to Absolutely, life, yeah. Right? You know, I mean, I suppose one of the most famous ones that comes to my head is uh, one of the Greek stories about a crow um, who comes across a broken jug and there's water in the jug, but his beak is not long enough. So he looks around and he finds the stones and he puts the stones into the jug and the water level rises bit by bit. And the moral of the story is that necessity is the mother of invention. That story is over 2000 years old. And then if we look at the Quran and the Bible and all of the holy books, how old are they? And the scrolls, you know, and those are all very much story based. And the first societies that were born in the cradle of humanity, which again would have been back in Greece and Rome, you know, kind of when people were trying to figure out what a society was, how do they do it? You know, so remember the amphitheater is some of them that still exist to this day. And um, what they would do is they would get massive masks, you know, almost as big as a man. And they would parade through the city and they would say, if you're good and you keep the rules, this will happen. And they'd show a heavenly vista. But if you're bad and you don't obey the rules, this will happen. And they'd show us Hades or hell, you know, and they did that with through the voice, with the choruses and through the imagery and through musical instruments and all joined together through story. So, yeah. If there's a shanuckle that represents that story about the, the jug and the big moon and ga shift. I haven't heard that. Uh, so that's the um, the necessity breeds the... Yeah, the, the invention. The invention, yeah. yeah. <gasps> Brilliant, yeah. yeah. Um, the, is, do, you, do you feel like we're going, becoming more and more technologically orientated now like and does yeah. that is there is there a counter movement back to our roots and our folklore and our storytelling oh, now well no you're 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 talking to the work that i've done since 2007 so um i worked with the sexual health center in cork for a number of years and we'd um we'd go out to the schools and we were noticing that children um were bu- first of all bullying one another um, outside of school hours also so the bullying was coming through on technology and stuff like that you know but also getting addicted to it and we did some studies and we realized that technology lights up the same uh, center of the brain as cocaine you know so um, and the technology is so new that these studies um, haven't been looked at in any great depth yet or reproduced in in many areas of the world you know um, so I was working with, um, you know, children who were contemplating and were uh, self-harming and were contemplating, you know, suicide and stuff like that. And I was going, oh, my God, these are children, you know. Um, and what, what I realized was that the internal landscape that was fed so much for me by my mother through story was missing for the kids and that they depended on the technology to be able to access color and you know form and excitement and couldn't close their eyes and do that so we would work on story building and again i used muli lahad six-part story hugely in this context you know and within a very short space of time 
you know, within one or two sessions, these kids were making the most fantastical stories and the stories were getting kinder and kinder. And I was absolutely amazed at that because a lot of technology leads us to the excitement of trauma instead of to the nourishment of kindness. So I was very interested in that during that time. Is that a case of moving more towards like is technology kind of filling fill in a vacuum or something that has been left by moving away from more like oral yeah. um, and more oral traditions and then there people that were getting addicted to technology which in a way is taking the space of storytelling is, um, that, is that the way it is or well i suppose in my life as a storyteller uh, i uh, i see people uh taking part in stories all the time you know um but i'm also from a technological background and i would have been 22 years in a corporate environment you know and i found that people loved to tell their own story to look up from their computer and to tell you what was going on in their life but they didn't know how to do it because we're beginning to lose our social skills so then i i myself when i was in that environment and i was and i was feeling the strain of that myself I would go to uh, places, uh, you know, I was living in Dublin at the time, so the Merchant O'Shea, I'd go down there and I I went in through set dancing, but I met the storytellers there. And I found as a European ops manager with an Irish accent, wherever I went, people expected me to start a session or a sing-song you know, and sure, I was only too happy to oblige, uh, you know. Especially being from Cork, it was a gift of the gab. It, completely in my <laughs> blood, completely, you know, um, and that people loved it. They were only looking for an excuse. So uh, one time I went to Sweden for a symposium and I said, you know, they, they asked me to start a session and I did and I got all the managers involved and stuff. And the next year they said, we really want to bring the symposium to Ireland for the tradition of story. Look, look at how powerful that was, you know, and that's what happened, you know. So um, so I think people are only looking for the excuse. And if we can learn to use technology as a tool instead of as an end product, then it could be very useful to story, you know. So I, I could imagine being able to access storytellers you know, um, over the web that I wouldn't be able to access. Yeah, well, this is going to be going on the internet as well. Exactly, you know. <laughs> and I, I listen to David Allison's uh, story podcast all the time and I'm hoping this is another one that will take off because we need story. And there's nothing like, you know, people talk about, and there's a great place for this, don't get me wrong, but, you know, kind of um, apps like a cam, you know, and, and I love them and I use them from time to time, but I like nothing better than getting into bed, lighting a candle and putting on a story podcast and being taken away by a story, you know. And do you think there is a danger that we are in danger of losing our social skills and our, our, our social skills being reduced because of how dependent we're coming on technology? Yeah, I, I have great faith in um, humanity and its ability to survive and I'm what like especially with the kids, you know, I love going. I tell stories for children every Sunday and uh, we've been making stories together. So we have stories like Grumpy Gob and um, the fairies of Fitzgerald's Park, you know, and the, the dragon on top of St. Finbar's Cathedral, things like that, you know, and these come out of the children and they get so excited by them. And if you tell them and you miss a detail that they are after putting in, you won't be, they won't be long saying, no, it was a blue cloak, not a red cloak, that kind of thing, you know. Um, so they, I think that as long as that hunger 
and joy of story is in our children, we're safe and it's there, you know. Um, at the minute I'm reading a biography about Bobby Sands, nothing but an unfinished song. Mm-hmm. And obviously a lot of that biography is centered around the time that he spent on in, in the hitch blocks and on the no wash protest and the dirty protest and on the hunger strike as well. Yeah. And one of the key, well, if if you read any of those sort of prison literature that came out from around about that time, that the constant theme in every single piece of work is that the storytelling played a key role yeah. every night that the, that the prisoners were telling stories to each other through the doors of the cells yeah. and that there would be people who would be very good at recounting stories yeah. and even how they got the stories in yeah. they were because they weren't allowed books so there was they were getting bits and pieces from the outside of stories and then piecing it together and then getting up to the door to yeah. shout the story down the the rest of the wing yeah and sing it singing as well they sang stories and they were absolutely amazing and there's something about an Irish story in song that gives it a different depth and allows it to be remembered over generations and generations and generations you know Um, so and I remember well Bobby Sands being um, in prison I was alive at that time and I was living in Mayfield and it was really in our consciousness and it wasn't in our consciousness through TV which we didn't get to see until six o'clock in the evening. Um, it wasn't true news story. It was true the stories that were coming down from the people that had come, you know, during that time. It was from the pictures on the walls. You remember those those big paintings, you know, and it was from the stories. And then I think of the women, you know, kind of you talk about the stories being, um, you know, shouted down through the the prison halls and things like that and i think of the women in belfast with the with the ash can you know the trash cans banging banging them you know uh, to to bring it to the attention of the world and how they joined together you know um when it was dangerous and life-threatening to do that you know and i think of liz weir who got her mbe in um, for stories, you know, it didn't matter what part of the divide you were on. If you were a child, you deserved stories. And she it started like that through telling the stories. But she got very involved in the peace process and in how peace could be brought and bought through stories, you know. And then, you know, kind of the men who led who turned, like, I mean, what a great story that was in the end, you know, like the... Um, Martin McGuinness and you had um, Ian Paisley and you had Jerry Adams talking in a room together, you know, and this was like a like a great operetta that we'd all seen play out. This will never happen, you know, and then it did. And when, when that happened, the, the then the whole world wanted to know about the story because it felt like the story was coming to an end. How, how can we use that going forward for other countries that are in conflict and it really excites my uh, long experience as a crisis manager to look at things like that and see how those people who who did a U-turn leadership thing look at look at that for a story. How could we use that, you know, in the series of today and you know, kind of those places? It's interesting that you mentioned the, the possibility of stories crossing over to other cultures and other countries because mm-hmm. that's a a bit of a theme in the, like the folklore stories. Yeah. They cross over from country to country Big time. as yeah. well. Yeah. And I was actually going to ask you about the, 
like higher higher throughout the ages, women how have women been represented in the in the folklore tales, especially like say for example in Irish mythology? Yeah, well I suppose we had some great women like Maeve, you know, the pirate queen, and Grania Whale, um, uh, so and uh, Morrigan you know, the shapeshifter and stuff like that. So I've I've had great, strong women in my life in role modeling stories always because of that. Uh, but also I've been to, I've been, I learned, um, you know, strong moral lessons by hearing the stories of the women in my line who came down uh, through the ages, you know. So I know stories of my grandmother, who was a woman of the knowing, who had a cure for mumps and measles when there was no antibiotics, you know. Um, the story of my grandmother, who was put into service to a, a, a family in Cove, and she ran away, and Cork was occupied at the time. So she came in, into an occupied city, and she was missing the curfew, and she was taken by a woman with a shawl, you know, and, and her life began for her from that moment, you know, so... It's about not being afraid to do the things that need to be done, even if they're not smiled on by your society, but also keep the rules when you can. You know, so I suppose that's encapsulated in the hand that rocks the cradle rules the world, you know. How did you get those stories about your your um, relatives going back in the generations? My great-grandmother lived to be over 100 years old, and I went up to see her. Isn't that amazing? So, um, and then... Her, my grand aunts, my, my grandmother's um, sisters would have been telling me those stories while I was there. My grandmother's story would have been told to me proudly by my mother, you know, kind of when when um, when we were growing up. And my grandmother herself would tell you tales to keep you safe. You know, one of the, the tales was never walk near the walls, um, you know, kind of on a dark street, never walk near walls or doorways. And my uh, my mother would have been told this before us, and she was walking along a bombed out site in London um, in the 60s, you know, before any of her children were born. And this man jumped out from a doorway, and if she had been walking on the footpath near the, the houses, she would have been in serious trouble altogether, you know. But she, the funny part of that story is she said, uh, when I heard it, I, I, you know, I heard it um, secondhand and I, I heard about the blackened hand that would come out of the wall. And she says, it turns out it wasn't a blackened hand at all. It was talk about the black and tans. So the blackened right. hand. <laughs> so that's what it became over time, you know. Um, but yeah, to this day, I don't walk in near the walls, you know. So, yeah. You mentioned... Um the you know women around Cork and stuff like that there and the stories that they had and there was a friend of mine actually who I used to go down and visit who has got an amazing story and I've got a bit of a few old recordings with him on a podcast episode back Mick Murphy he was known as the Iron Man yeah. and he used to do circus tricks in the Colkey oh. and he became very friendly with the Shawleys yeah yeah around there and got a lot of stories yeah from them and that yeah. must have been in the 50s or something like that yeah yeah yeah. So they still have a great tradition of brilliant stories and are very proud of it and very uh, protective of the stories that they have. And I would have done a lot of story gathering from the women um, of, say, of Cork, say, of Gronabraher and Blarney Street and the marshes and stuff like that, you know. And the stories that they have to tell are absolutely amazing. And it boggles my mind that there is a divide between those women who have all this knowledge and wisdom 
and the young mothers of today. So a lot of my work is gathering these stories and feeding them back to where they will be useful, you know. And why do you think there is a divide there? Um, a lot of it is economic, you know. So like my mom and the moms of Mayfield when I was growing up didn't go out to work, you know. So you had your mother to come home to. Then my generation, including myself, um, went out to work and took uh, our right to be able to to do that. But then you give up um, a certain, um, you, you know, you give up. It's a trade-off. So if you're going to be at work, you're not going to be at home and you're not going to be connecting with your community, you know. So you would, you would be connecting with your work colleagues instead. And that's very different, you know. So you're not passing on you know, kind of mother wisdoms, you're passing on what what uh, smart goals and, you know, how to um, how to do to reach your corporate goals, you know. And that's a real thing, isn't it? That especially with the big American kind yeah. of companies that they foster that environment to try and create a kind of family atmosphere. Yeah. But in reality, it's not a family. No. They're your colleagues. Yeah. So what's what is the importance of bridging that gap that you're trying to get the stories from the older generation to the I'm younger going generation. to tell you a true story so so there was um there was a terrible um situation going on in the schools of Cork City where mothers had to turn up looking like a yummy mummy with the hair perfectly done and the gel nails and stuff like that and it was at a time when there wasn't enough money to put food on the tables and I said to those women why are you doing that and they said, because if you don't um, keep up the standards, your children will be bullied in school. So I went back to the older women and I told them that story. And they said, that's leaving the children run the nation, girl. You can't be doing that. And I said, that's lovely, but how do we stop? And they said, sure, you know, you used the shawar about it. And I said, what's the shawar about it? But as they said it, those words kind of had a tintinabulation of memory even in, in my own head, you know, and I was thinking, I've heard that before. And they says, well, you know, and I said to them, you don't have the pressures that these young women have because the television is constantly, you know, throwing adverts out at them. We're back to technology again, you know. And they said, oh, listen, girl, do you think that the big brown parcels didn't come from America and England? And I said, oh, yeah, I remember them coming. And they said, yeah, and one house would get a big parcel and all the other houses would be looking on with hungry eyes through the net curtains. And then someone might come out and they might have a beautiful bit of style on from New York. And they'd be going, look at this from New York. And we'd say, sure, what about it? And then they had two choices. You get back into your box, which I hadn't heard in a long time, or you boast more. And no one in Cork loves a boaster girl. And they were so right. So I was telling the young women this and they went, well, that won't work, you know, kind of that might have worked back then. But they were obviously chatting about it at their sinks and making the dinner and stuff like that. And it went into the kids and one of the kids went into school and this child came over and she went, "Uh, Reebok, 60 euro, because I'm worth it. And this other child went, show on about it <laughs> and she described to me and all how the girl's head started to shake with shock and she was making the big o with her mouth and she just didn't have a comeback for that so she went home and of course the parents were like you go in and you tell them you're from a two-income family and all the all the other stuff that we had to listen to during uh, the rich inverted commas times in ireland you know so she came back in and this is the miracle of story because you give the first one to teach 
but the second one comes for free. So the girl came in the following day and she was going to income family, blah, blah, blah. And the other girl was listening to her and she was, oh, yeah, because you're worth it because you're from a two income family, blah, blah, blah. And she goes, yeah, she says, because they saw you coming. She says, do you know you could get the same thing down in pennies in five different colours and still have enough money to go to the pictures? Because you're worth it. Because they saw you coming. <laughs> and that was that was how the story took root in the new generation. How miraculous is that? Isn't that yeah, brilliant? And all those little phrases as well. Like, yeah. What about... And, and like, every city in Ireland, every area of Ireland probably has their own version of those. Absolutely. There. Like, I think in Belfast, like you hear someone saying, catch yourself on. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, so... Yeah. So uh, catch yourself on, you know, yeah. how appropriate for this story, you know, why aren't we catching ourselves on? Yeah. We all know that this, you know, um, that we're being brainwashed by advertisement, you know, so we should catch ourselves on. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned earlier that you, you kind of have a special connection with stories kind of like of the land and stuff like that. Yeah. So yeah. How, how did you get that interest? Um, I suppose through set dancing, uh, first of all, because I'd be listening to them for years, you know. And um, then uh, I found that a lot of I, I'm. Uh, have you heard of um, Clarissa Pinkola Estes and uh, the woman who runs with wolves? Oh yeah, the woman who runs with wolves. Yeah, I actually so got that in the house. I haven't started reading it. Oh, I picked that up like a book of gems, and I just thumbed through it. And wherever my thumb stops, I read the story that day. You know, and she's um, that woman. Um, she translates the stories into. Um, a Jungian translation of them and I'm just fascinated by the stories themselves but also by the hidden meanings that are in them and with these stories of the land like I tell a, a fox story that came to me through um, you know kind of a methodology of harvesting stories from the pre-conscious you know which is it, they say it's a drama therapeutic uh, tool, but actually I think it's a humanity tool that we've been using since the dawn of time, you know. And um, this story... Is that, sorry, is that like before you were aware of yourself yeah, as a so person, kind of like when you're two, you're two years old or something like that? Is that no, but if you actually kind of half close your eyes and you think of a theme and you you listen for a story, then a story can come to you like that. And, um, you know, I'm sure you've heard of the stolen note, Seamus Heaney and the stolen note. So this is about how music can come to you in its entirety. And it's actually given to you by the she or by the fairies, you know, um, when it comes like that. It feels as if it's that you didn't um, sit down and use your brain to uh, create a story. And this story that I have of Marjorie Rua. Um, which is a, a story of, of an affinity between a woman and a fox, came to me like that. I didn't sit down and carve out the story. The story came to me like a dream, but I was awake when it happened. So that's what I'm talking about there, you know. But when I tell that story, and I've told it in, in um, many different places, there isn't one time that goes by where somebody doesn't approach to me and say, that story was meant for me. And I believe it every time. Every time somebody says that to me, I go... That story was meant for you. What's the gist today? of the story? Um, it's, um, it's a story about how this beautiful woman. And from the outside, when people were looking at her and her life, they were going, some people are charmed and they just have everything. But she had a sad, sharp secret that lived in the bottom of her heart. And it was that she really wanted a child, a child of her own, to fill her arms, you know. And um, she had a man that she loved and he loved her, you know, 
but they couldn't have a child and she had a room in her house ready for that child uh, to come and she would say her mantras every day and you know put all the pressure on on herself that a lot of women do and there was no sign of the child coming and then she woke up one morning and her her anamkara her soul friend was waiting in the mist for her the red fox on Madrarua, the red dog you know and she she's pulling on her coat and her wellies and she's going out into the mist and she knows exactly where the fox is because the affinity is drawing her in and she kneels down to look into the eyes of the fox and something happens that has never happened before. Her spirit leaves her body and her hand her goes into the front paw of the fox and her other hand goes into the other front paw of the fox and her eyes come behind the eyes of the fox and now she can see through the eyes of the fox and she can see like she's never seen before. And she can sense that in the field just to the right of her there is a sheep and that there is chickens just to the left of her and they're nervous. She even knows they're nervous because they sense her back. And then she sticks her fox tongue into the river. And when she does that, she can taste a little bit of lavender and wild garlic and the salmon that has been here only minutes before. And then she feels that she's been called down into the earth. So she goes into the forest that she's wandered so many times before, but it looks completely different. And she sees a hole in the base of the tree that she has never seen before. And she enters the hole and she goes down down into the heart of the earth and her eyes start to adjust and she sees stars under the earth and she's thinking stars under the earth that's not possible and then she thinks I'm in the body of a fox anything is possible and then she realizes they're not stars but six cubs waiting for their mother to come home and they attack her with joy because she is in the body of the mother and they bite her on the neck to say hello and they suckle and she lies down and her her spine is held by the back of the lair under the ground and in that moment she knows what it is to be a mother and she knows that she would stand between these cubs and any danger that are coming in the way and after a while she thinks that's the lesson that's why I was brought here and as soon as that thought comes into her head the fox gets up and brings her in spirit back up through uh, the earth to the opening and back to her garden and the spirits separate and she looks at the fox and she says thank you Ma'anamkara thank you so much but also the fox looks at her again and she realizes I'm not there's something that she needs to hear from me and she goes I know I know what I must do and she runs into the house and up the stairs and she takes everything apart in that room that's held for the children and she buys the best art materials that she can find and she opens it up to the uh, children of the village and they all love being in Marua's house and it's filled with laughter and over time she became Shan Waharlia instead of on, on um, Rua, she became Shan Waharlia and people would remember that she would hold on to their art pieces that they made when they were three or four years of age and she would frame them and she would give it to them on the occasion of their wedding or, or something like this, like the real treasures that they were. And she discovered that you don't have to have a baby from your own body to be a mother. And the village discovered that it takes more than one person to raise a child. 
so wow, that's the story. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah, absolutely. But the reactions to that story are amazing because women have come up to me and said, oh, I feel a lot of pressure to have a child now and I'm not ready. And this story tells me that I don't have to be. And I'm like, look at that. That's amazing. And then other women will come up and they'll say, I can't have kids myself. And I realize now that I don't need to have children myself, you know, and, you know, kind of, and that's what they would take out of it, you know. So I, it's like the, the difference of the heart message that somebody receives from the very same story. You could be telling a story to 30 people and 30 different messages will go out. And that's that's when a story is medicinal, you know. That listening to that kind of exemplifies in a way how broad an application storytelling has or how mm. broad, how broadly like it's everywhere and like yeah. you could be telling a story to a bedtime story that's just yeah. kind of like messing around or you could be telling a story to a group of 100 people and then I guess like that story in a way does that it kind of shows the importance of the stories that we tell ourselves about ourselves absolutely in a way yeah yeah would that be the kind of work that you'd be doing in the drama yes. therapy? Yes, so you, you talked about um, drama and how important it was earlier. And one of the things we look at in drama is endings. So there was a big old debate on the radio um, recently saying, oh, we shouldn't be telling, um, you know, uh, those archetypal stories of women being subservient, you know, things like Cinderella. And, and I was saying, just change the endings, you know, make her the warrior. Stories are, that's why I don't like to read a story in a book and learn it off. So instead you just pick out the story from the book, the bit that remains in your heart and you tell that. And then you say, no, if I changed it and I changed the ending, would that change anything? And actually what it does is it changes world views, you know, so how a story is told can change a world view. So a great example of that is Disney and what he did to the Grimm's fairy tales, you know, he took all of the grim out of the fairy tales and he, um, you know, he made them very charming, but not, but not with a lot of lesson or substance in them, you know. Yeah, so. and when I think back at a lot of the, the Irish kind of folklore tales or myths, yeah, a lot of the women in those stories aren't subservient. They're all yeah, like exactly. warriors and like most of the time casting a spell on yeah. some fella who's been misbehaving or something like that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. You know, so. Yeah, so where did that where did that come from then? That when at what stage along the line did, did that start to change? Well, I'll tell you now. I was listening to Daniel Allison's um, stories uh, this morning. And uh, one of the stories that he tells is about the kiss of the crow to Cúchulainn, you know, and it's about um, Maragana and how she was the goddess of war. And he says, I wonder, are there bits missing? And I was wondering away myself as well. And uh, there is the archetype of woman has changed. But back in the early days of Ireland, she was just as important as just as powerful um, as the the men, you know, so um, she goes to give Cúchulainn a kiss and Cúchulainn says no, but he says he's under her spell and he's about to kiss her. And then there's that of the crow, but she is the crow. So did she cause the call because she didn't want to kiss him as well? So then she pushes him to kiss her and that brings up the battle rage, you know, the, the bloodlust. And stuff like that. So, um, and through that, he puts down the enemies. So there's more than uh, one way for an interaction to bring about a result, 
It can be true love or it can be true manipulation or it can be uh, through a teaching methodology. And I think both men and women have the capacity to do that. Do you think that those stories that we've been told since we were, we were like in the cut yeah. about Coo Cullen and the Fianna and, um, you know, Clan Lear and all those yeah. real big um, kind of well-known folk tales and mythology kind of tales. Do you think that they impact us? Do you think that we, as Irish people, we have a, a direct line yeah. back to all of those people and that that impacts us as a, as a nation in a Absolutely. way? Absolutely. I think you just scratch the surface and we have a tale there, you know, but there you, you mentioned, um, you know, kind of those... Um, the, um, Fionn McCool and Finnegas, you know, uh, is a very important tale. And, and for all of my childhood, it was a charming tale. And then in Milltown Malve in the 90s, I met a traveling man called Paddy Joe. And I met Paddy Joe for three days because he wouldn't tell me the story in one sitting. And I was absolutely enthralled by it. And I think it was the start of me realizing the magic in stories. And he said, this is an initiation stories for boys. But uh, we're losing that. And he said, normally this wouldn't be shared with a woman, but I'm going to share it with you, you know. And he told me um, the tale of how this boy was so charmed by his mother and he'd be singing songs and he was able to do the embroidery and stuff like that, you know. Um, But his father was looking on with worried eyes thinking he's going to have to run the nation and he's going to have to know the ways of men. And he had no interest in it. So his father organized him for him to be kidnapped and thrown at the feet of Phineas, you know. And that's a bit of the Salmon of Knowledge story that we've lost, you know, and an important bit, you know. So that then um, that story, along with uh, the story of uh, Iron John, um, was the basis for my thesis. Because I think that in the 1920s, women really needed help to become... um, emancipated politically and I think in 100 years later coming up to 2020 men need to be emancipated on an emotional level you know with this kind of stuff and how we operate as beings is very different between a man and a woman that's why it's in every um you know kind of indigenous society you have a um a shack for men and you have a shack for women so I think the men's shed is very important and I think it's very important that women don't invade that and I'd probably be killed for that and I'm a feminist you know so uh, but I, I I do believe that there is inequality uh, on both sides and the inequality for men is that they're emotionally uh, bonded and that uh, you know um, not bonded as in to one another but that they're bound you know they're um, and it would be lovely to lose those bones through things like story. In relation to the lessons that we learn from storytelling, how important is it to keep like the grim parts of the stories in? Very important, really important. So um, there is um, th- there's an awful lot of research done on this. But, um, you know, when you go on to um, the roller coaster and you, you're absolutely terrified, but you know you're safe and that all the safety checks are done and stuff like that, and you're going to survive, but you still feel that, <gasps> you know, and that's really important because it teaches us boundaries, but what the stories do extra to that. You know, I, I'm going to go back to my mom for this one. In the 
80s when we would have the power outages, she'd stick the candle in the middle of sand in the jam jar and she'd say to us, no, when you stay in the light of that candle, you'll be safe and I'll be able to look in your eyes. But if you go into the darkness, I can't be responsible. So there was no way that we were going to leave. And there was five of us. And we, like, that's a small Irish family. My grandmother had nine, you know, on one side and nine on the other. So if you're kind of taking care of that many kids and you want to make sure that they stay around and you can't keep your eyes on them and be a helicopter parent, you have to put the, the wisdom into them. And you can't just say, stay here, because the first thing a child will do is, no. But if you tell them that if they stay within the light of the candle, they're safe, they will do that. Yeah. You know, so. it's In a way, it's kind of like, from the, putting the grim part into the story, it's kind of like make, being afraid yeah. in a story so that you can handle yourself. Absolutely. In the real world. But it's interesting that you were saying that about the staying in the candlelight, because actually a very good friend of mine was telling me a story that, uh, her dad used to tell her about the bog yeah. and how that it, it was haunted and things like that and that never to go near it. Oh. But obviously that story was made so that people, they wouldn't go into the bog and fall in their bog hole yeah, exactly. and disappear. Yeah, but and related to that, there was the old saying of um, at night time, the paths are for the living and the fields are for the dead. And it was exactly for that reason, because people could go down a bog hole, do you know, so, but if they stayed on the paths, that wouldn't happen, you know. And also you shouldn't be out at night, those stories, you know. So I'm going to ask you a question now. There's three kinds of creatures that walk this earth that are not of this earth. Do you know what they are? No. They are the fairies and the she. They're the souls of those that have died but don't realize they're dead. And then there are the angels that were hurled out of heaven after Satan. Now, if you come across one of these creatures in your everyday life, would you know how to identify them? I don't think so. You look at their feet because they're not supposed to walk this earth. And if both feet are even a centimeter off the ground at the same time, so that one foot is not connected to the earth, then you're in contact with one of these creatures and you should run. I think that's probably a good place to finish up yeah. <laughs> and a good lesson for people to take away from this podcast. Exactly, that's it. You know. <laughs> Here, thanks very much for taking the time anyway to do the, the podcast. Very and welcome. Stuff. And best of luck with this, and it's really badly needed. You Thank know, you. So. Um, just, to, I guess, to finish up, is there a way that people can keep track of what you're doing and what you have oh, coming up? Yeah, I have a Facebook um, uh, page called Story Seeds, uh, and I'm also a part of Cork Yarn Spinners. And we meet on the third Thursday of every month in Crawford and Company, which is just across from Anglesey Street, Garda Station. But we've never needed the guards. That has never been a problem, you know. And our next one is a very exciting one because we have um, David Jackson. And David Jackson combines really ancient Druid stories with spoken word. He's absolutely amazing. So... Maybe you'll come along and we'll see you there. The yeah. third Thursday of the month. Yeah, so this month is the 17th. And then on the last Thursday of the month is our own book club, which is just up the road. From oh, well, we, we'll just have to go to one another's story session. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, thanks very much. <laughs> no problem. What did you think about that? Gail. I have to say that this really was a very enjoyable episode to record because I got to go and meet Maria for the first time. 
and we sat down in the kitchen and had that chat but also a class episode for me just to be able to listen back to it really is the reason why i started the rebel matters podcast in the first place was um so that i could go around and meet great people like maria and hear their stories and also share them with all of you legends out there So thanks a million for tuning in and also thanks to everyone who sends in the feedback and comments and stuff like that on social media. It really is good to know that you're out there listening and I love having your input. Keep on sharing the episodes on your own social media and uh, tell your mates about it. And also leave us a rating and review wherever you're listening to it, especially if you're listening on iTunes. And if you want to become a patron of the Rebel Matters podcast, then you can go to rebelmatters.ie. There's a link there to the Patreon account and you can sign up for a little monthly subscription um, to whatever value that you want to. um, And that's like really, really appreciated. So go to Kedminamagat to everyone who has already signed up on the Patreon. Um, I love that people are out there and are willing to support the Rebel Matters podcast to just cover the cost of some of the production of making these shows, like going travelling to meet people and the cost of the production itself with the online softwares that we are subscribed to and also just to cover the cost of the bits and pieces of equipment that are required to keep the quality of the recordings up to good enough standard so that you guys... um, all enjoy listening to the episodes but then the Rebel Matters podcast is also free for everybody so if you're not in a position to support the podcast on Patreon then just keep on listening and keep on sharing it around anyway that's it from me for this week except for the bit of Roald Dahl that we have been reading together at the end of the episodes so I just want to say to Maria for taking the time to record this chat with me and for being such a legend go and check her out yourselves and if you get the opportunity to go and hear her doing her thing anywhere in Cork or further afield then obviously you should definitely go and do that but could you encounter all the cards again slang foil This is a chapter from the book Boy Tales of Childhood by Roald Dahl. The first chapter can be found at the end of episode 52 of the Rebel Matters podcast and this particular chapter is called Captain Hardcastle. This is the first time I've read this book so we're making our way through it together. We called them masters in those days, not teachers. And at St Peter's, the one I feared most of all, apart from the headmaster, was Captain Hardcastle. 
This man was slim and wary and he played football. On the football field, he wore white running shorts, white gym short shoes and white socks. His legs were as hard and as thin as ram's legs and the skin around his calves was almost exactly the colour of mutton fat. The hair on his head was not ginger. It was a brilliant dark vermilion, like a ripe orange and it was plastered back with immense quantities of brilliant hen in the same fashion as the headmaster's. The parting in his hair was a white line straight down the middle of his scalp, so straight it could only have been made with a ruler. On either side of that parting you could see the comb tracks running back through the greasy orange hair like little tram lines. Captain Hardcastle sported a moustache that was the same colour as his hair, and oh what a moustache it was. A truly terrifying sight, a thick orange hedge that sprouted and flourished between his nose and his upper lip and ran clear across his face from the middle of one cheek to the middle of the other. But this was not one of those nail brush moustaches, all short and clipped and bristly. Nor was it a long and droopy in the walrus style. Instead, it was curled most splendidly upwards, all the way along as though it had had a permanent wave put into it, or possibly curling tongs heated in the mornings over a tiny flame of methylated spirits. The only other way he could have achieved this curling effect, we boys decided, was by prolonged upward brushing with a hard toothbrush in front of the looking glass every morning. Behind the moustache there lived an inflamed and savage face with a deeply corrugated brow that indicated a very limited intelligence. Life is a puzzlement, the corrugated brow seemed to be saying, and the world is a dangerous place. All men are enemies and small boys are insects that will turn and bite you if you don't get them first and squash them hard. Captain Hardcastle was never still. His orange head twitched and jerked perpetually from side to side in the most alarming fashion, and each twitch was accompanied by a little grunt that came out of the nostrils. He had been a soldier in the army in the Great War, and that, of course, was how he had received his title. But even small insects like us knew that Captain was not a very exalted rank, and only a man with little else to boast about would hang on to it in civilian life. It was bad enough to keep calling yourself Major after it was all over, but Captain was the bottoms. Rumour had it that the constant twitching and jerking and snorting was caused by something called shell shock, but we were not quite sure what that was. We took it to mean that an explosive object had gone off very close to him with such an enormous bang that it had made him jump high in the air and he hadn't stopped jumping since. For a reason that I could never properly understand, Captain Hardcastle had it in for me from the very first day at St Peter's. Perhaps it was because he taught Latin and I was no good at it. Perhaps it was because already, at the age of nine, I was very nearly as tall as he was. Or even more likely, it was because I I took an instant dislike to his giant orange moustache and he often caught me staring at it with what was probably a little sneer under the nose. I had only to pass within ten feet of him in the corridor and he would glare at me and shout, Hold yourself straight, boy. Pull your shoulders back. Or, Take those hands out of your pockets. Or, What's so funny, may I ask? What are you smirking at? Or, most insulting of all, You, what's your name? Get on with your work. I knew, therefore, that it was only a matter of time before the gallant captain nailed me good and proper. The crunch came during my second term, when I was exactly nine and a half, and it happened during evening prep. Every weekday evening, the whole school would sit for one hour in the main hall, between six and seven o'clock, to do prep. The master on duty for the week would be in charge of prep, which meant that he sat high up on a 
dais at the top of the end of the hall and kept order. Some masters read a book while taking prep and some corrected exercises, but not Captain Hardcastle. He would sit up there on the dais, twitching and grunting, and never once he'd look down. Never once would he look down at his desk. His small, milky blue eyes would rove the hall for the full sixty minutes, searching for trouble. And heaven help the boy who caused it. The rules of prep were simple but strict. You were forbidden to look up from your work, and you were forbidden to talk. That was that was all there was to it. But it left you precious little leeway. In extreme circumstances, and I never knew what these were. You could put your hand up and wait until you were asked to speak, but you had better be awfully sure that the circumstances were extreme. Only twice during my four years at St Peter's did I see a boy putting his hand up during prep. The first one went like this. Master, what is it? Boy, please sir, may I be excused to go to the lavatory? Master, certainly not. You should have gone before. Boy, but sir, please sir, I, I didn't want to before I didn't know. Master, whose fault was that? Get on with your work. Boy, but sir, oh sir, please sir, let me go. Master, one more word out of you and you'll be in trouble. Naturally, the wretched boy dirtied his pants, which caused a storm later on upstairs with the matron. On the second occasion, I remember clearly that it was a summer term and the boy who put his hand up was called Braithwaite. I also seem to recollect that the master taking prep was our friend Captain Hardcastle, but I wouldn't swear to it. The dialogue went something like this. Master, yes, what is it? Braithwaite. Please, sir, a wasp came in through the window and it stung me on the lip and it's swelling up. Master, a what? Braithwaite. A wasp, sir. Master, speak up, boy, I can't hear you. A what came in through the window? Braithwaite. It's hard to speak up, sir, with my lip all swelling up. Master, with your what all swelling up? Are you trying to be funny? Braithwaite. No, sir, I promise not, sir. Master, talk properly, boy. What's the matter with you? Braithwaite. I've told you, sir. I've been stung, sir. My lip is swelling. It's hurting terribly. Master. Hurting terribly? What's hurting terribly? Braithwaite. My lip, sir. It's getting bigger and bigger. Master. What prep are you doing tonight? Braithwaite. French verbs, sir. We have to write them out. Master. Do you write with your lip? Braithwaite. No, sir. I don't, sir. But you see, master, all I see is that you're making an infernal noise and disturbing everybody in the room. Now get on with your work. They were tough, those masters, make no mistake about it, and if you wanted to survive, you had to become pretty tough yourself. My own turn came, as I said, during my second term, and Captain Hardcastle was again taking prep. You should know that during prep, every boy in the hall sat in his own small individual wooden desk. These desks had the usual sloping wooden tops with a narrow flat strip at the far end where there was a groove to hold your pen and a small hole in the right-hand side in which the inkwell sat. The pens used we used had detachable nibs and it was necessary to dip your nib into the inkwell every six or seven seconds when you were writing. Ballpoint pens and felt pens had not been yet invented and fountain pens were forbidden. The nibs were used the nibs we used were very fragile and most boys kept a supply of new ones in a small box in their trouser pocket. Prep was in progress. Captain Hardcastle was sitting up in the dais in front of us, stroking his orange moustache, twitching his head and grunting through his nose. His eyes roved the hall endlessly, searching for mischief. The only noises to be heard were Captain Hardcastle's little snorting grunts and the soft sound of pen nibs moving over paper. Occasionally there was a ping as somebody dipped his nib too violently into his tiny white porcelain inkwell. Disaster struck when I foolishly stubbed 
the tip of my nib into the top of the desk. The nib broke. I knew I hadn't got a spur, one in my pocket, but a broken nib was never accepted as an excuse for not finishing prep. We had been set an essay to write, and the subject was The Life Story of a Penny. I still have that essay in my files. I had made a decent start, and I was rattling along fine when I broke that nib. There was still another half hour of prep to go, and I couldn't sit there doing nothing all that time. Nor could I put my hand up and tell Captain Hardcastle I'd broken my nib. I simply did not dare. And as a matter of fact, I really wanted to finish that essay. I knew exactly what was going to happen to my penny through the next two pages, and I couldn't bear to leave it unsaid. I glanced to my right. The boy next to me was called Dobson. He was the same age as me, nine and a half, and a nice fellow. Even now, 60 years later, I can still remember that Dobson's father was a doctor and that he lived, as I had learned from the label in Dobson's tuck box, at the Red House, Uxbridge, Middlesex. Dobson's desk was almost touching mine. I thought I would risk it. I kept my head lowered, lowered, but watched Captain Hardcastle very carefully. When I was fairly sure he was looking the other way, I put a hand in front of my mouth and whispered, Dobson, Dobson, could you lend me a nib? Suddenly there was an explosion up on the desk. Captain Hardcastle had leapt to his feet and was pointing at me shouting, You're talking, I saw you talking. Don't try to deny it. I distinctly saw you talking behind your hand. I sat there frozen with terror. Every boy stopped working and looked up. Captain Hardcastle's face had gone from red to deep purple and he was twitching violently. Do you deny you were talking? He he shouted. No, sir. No, but... And do you deny you were trying to cheat? Do you deny that you were asking Dobson for the help with your work? No, no, sir, I wasn't. I wasn't cheating. Of course you were cheating. Why else, may I ask, would you be speaking to Dobson? I take it you were not inquiring after his health? It is worth reminding the reader once again of my age. I was not a self-possessed lad of 14, nor was I 12 or even 10 years old. I was nine and a half, and at that age, one is ill-equipped to tackle a grown-up man with flaming orange hair and a violent temper. One can do little else but stutter. I, I have broken my nib, sir, I whispered. I I was asking Dobson if he could lend me one, sir. You're lying, cried Captain Hardcastle, and there was a triumph in his voice. I always knew you were a liar, and a cheat as well. All I wanted was a nib, sir. I'd shut up if I were you, thundered the voice on the dais. You'll only get yourself into deeper trouble, and giving you a stripe. Those were words of doom. A stripe. I'm giving you a stripe. All around, I could feel a kind of sympathy reaching out from every boy in that school but nobody moved or made a sound here I must explain the system of stars and stripes that we had at St Peter's for exceptionally good work you could be awarded a quarter star and a red dot was made with crayon beside your name on the notice board if you got four quarter stars a red line was drawn through the four dots indicating that you had completed a star for exceptionally poor work or bad behaviour you were given a stripe and that automatically meant a thrashing from the headmaster Every master had a book of quarter stars and a book of stripes, and these had to be filled in and signed and torn out exactly like checks from a checkbook. The quarter stars were pink, the stripes were a fiendish blue-green colour. The boy who received a star or a stripe would pocket it until the following morning after prayers, when the headmaster would call upon anyone who had been given one or the other to come forward in front of the whole school and hand it in. Stripes were considered so dreadful that they were not given very often. In any one week, it was unusual for more than two or three boys to be given stripes. And now Captain Hardcastle was giving one to me. Come here, he ordered. I got up from my desk and walked up to the dais. 
He already had his book of stripes on the desk and was filling one out. He was using red ink and along the line where it said reason he wrote talking and prep, trying to cheat and lying. He signed it and tore it off out of the book. Then, taking plenty of time, he filled in the counterfoil. He picked up the terrible piece of green-blue paper and waved it in my direction, but he didn't look up. I took it out of his hand and walked back to my desk. The eyes of the whole school followed my progress. For the remainder of prep, I sat at my desk and did nothing. Having no nib, I was unable to write another word about the life story of a penny, but I was made to finish it the next afternoon instead of playing games. The following morning, as soon as prayers were over, the headmaster called for quarter stars and stripes. I was the only boy to go up. The assistant masters were sitting on very uptight chairs on either side of the headmaster and I caught a glimpse of Captain Hardcastle, arms folded across his chest, head twitching, the milky blue eyes watching me intently, the look of triumph still glimmering on his face. I handed in my stripe. The headmaster took it and read the writing. Come and see me in my study, he said, as soon as this is over. Five minutes later, walking on my toes and trembling terribly, I passed through the green baize door and entered the sacred precincts where the headmaster lived. I knocked on a study door. Enter. I turned the knob and went into this large square room with bookshelves and easy chairs and a gigantic desk topped in red leather straddling the far corner. The headmaster was sitting behind the desk holding my stripe in his fingers. What have you got to say for yourself? He asked me and the white shark's teeth flashed dangerously between his lips. I didn't lie, sir, I said. I promised I didn't, and I wasn't trying to cheat. Captain Hardcastle says you were doing both, the headmaster said. And you're, Are you calling Captain Hardcastle a liar? No, sir. Oh, no, sir. I wouldn't, if I were you. I had a broken nib, sir, and I was asking Dobson if he could lend me another. That is not what Captain Hardcastle says. He says you were asking for help with your essay. Oh, no, sir, I wasn't. I was a long way away from Captain Hardcastle, and I was only whispering. I don't think he could have heard what I said, sir. So you are calling him a liar? Oh, no, sir, no, sir. I would never do that. It was impossible for me to win against the headmaster. What would I like to have said was, Yes, sir, if you really want to know, sir, I am calling Captain Hardcastle a liar, because that's what he is. But it was out of the question. I did, however, had one trump card left to play, or I thought I did. You could ask Dobson, sir. I whispered. Ask Dobson, he cried. Why should I ask Dobson? He would tell you what I said, sir. Captain Hardcastle is an officer and a gentleman, the headmaster said. He's told me what happened. I hardly think I want to go around asking some silly little boy if Captain Hardcastle is speaking the truth. I kept silent. For talking and prep, the headmaster went on. For trying to cheat and for lying, I'm going to give you six strokes of the cane. He rose from his desk and crossed over to the corner cupboard on the opposite side of the study. He reached up and took from the top of it three very thin yellow canes, each with a bent-over handle at one end. For a few seconds, he held them in his hands, examining them with some care, and then he selected one and replaced the other two on top of the cupboard. Bend over. I was frightened of that cane. There is no small boy in the world who wouldn't be. It wasn't simply an instrument for beating you. It was a weapon for wounding. It lacerated the skin. It caused severe black and scarlet bruising that took three weeks to disappear. And all the time during those three weeks you could feel your heart beating along the wounds. I tried once more. My voice slightly hysterical now. I didn't do it sir. I swear I'm telling the truth. Be quiet and bend over. Over there and touch your toes. Very slowly I bent over. Then I shut my eyes and braced myself for the first crack. 
crack. It was like a rifle shot. With a very hard stroke of the cane on one's buttocks, the time lag before you feel any pain is about four seconds. Thus, the experienced caner will always pause between strokes to allow the agony, agony to reach its peak. So for a few seconds after the first crack, I felt virtually nothing. Then suddenly came the frightful, searing, agonising, unbearable burning across the buttocks. And as it reached the highest and most excruciating point, the second crack came down. I clutched hold of my ankles as tight as I could and I bit into my lower lip. I was determined not to make a sound, for that would only give the executioner great satisfaction. Crack! Five seconds pause. Crack! Another pause. Crack! And another pause. I was counting the strokes, and as the sixth one hit me, hit me, I knew I was going to survive in silence. That'll do, the voice behind me said. I straightened up and clutched my backside as hard as I possibly could with both hands. This was always the instinctive and automatic reaction. The pain is so frightful, you try to grab hold of it and tear it away, and the tighter you squeeze, the more it helps. I did not look at the headmaster as I hopped across the thick red carpet towards the door. The door was closed and nobody else was about to open it for me. So for a couple of seconds I had to let go of my bottom with one hand to turn the doorknob. Then I was out and hopping around in the hallway of the private sanctum. Directly across the hall from the headmaster's study was the assistant's master's common room. They were all in there now waiting to spread out their respective classrooms spread out to their respective classrooms. But what I couldn't help noticing, even in my agony, was that this door was open. Why was it open? Had it been left that way on purpose so that they could all hear more clearly the sound of the cane from across the hall? Of course it had. And I felt quite sure that it was Captain Hardcastle who had opened it. I pictured him standing in there amongst his colleagues and snorting with satisfaction at every stinging stroke. Small boys can be very comradely when a member of their community has gotten into trouble and even more so when they feel an injustice has been done. When I returned to the classroom, I was surrounded on all sides by sympathetic faces and voices. But one particular incident has always stayed with me. A boy of my own age, called Hayton, was so violently incensed by the whole affair that he said to me before lunch that day, You don't have a father. I do. I'm going to write to my father and tell him what has happened, and he'll do something about it. He couldn't do anything, I said. Oh yes, he could, Hayton said. And what's more, he will. My father won't let them get away with this. Where is he now? He's in Greece, Hayton said, in Athens. But that won't make any difference. Then and there, little Hayton sat down and wrote to to the father he admired so much. But of course, nothing came of it. It was nevertheless a touching and generous gesture from one small boy to another. And I have never forgotten it.